starting with verse 11. Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like the wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven, seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has for us in this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have noticed that I'm reading from this uh, little black book here. These are copies of uh, Revelation. They're available in the back in the lobby. Uh, it is the um, English Standard Version that we're reading from, but also this copy gives you a place to make a lot of notes and to write in and uh, to express confusion or where you get enlightened. And so we just thought this might be a helpful guide. There also is a reading guide in the back, as each week we're going to ask you to read a significant chunk of Revelation so that we're prepared to uh, dive in and to teach from it on Sunday morning. So hopefully you can pick one of these up uh, in the back. As I was thinking about uh, the, the revelation this week, it reminded me of my downtime when I was down with my, my back surgery, and then again about a week ago I was down kind of with a cold. And uh, unfortunately during those days that I'm down I developed uh, a bad habit, and that habit was that I would go to my chair between 10 and 12 and turn on the TV. Because between 10 and 12, for those of you who also are home during that time, you know it's the sweet moment of let's make a deal and Price is Right. And one of my favorite shows is the Let's Make a Deal show and I was thinking about this because on Let's Make a Deal there's always what's behind the curtain, right? What's behind the curtain? And people are always stumped, they're always challenged, they're filled with this anxiety and worry uh, going on because they just don't know what's back there. Is it a better deal here or a better deal there? And wouldn't it be helpful if you were on that show and you could just take a peek behind that curtain and you would know, okay, that's a car or that, that's a, a trip or, oh my goodness, that's a, a zonk. And then you would know exactly what kind of decision to make, exactly how you wanted to move forward. And that is what we have going on here in the book of Revelation this morning. The curtain is being pulled back for us so that we can see and then know how we want to move forward. The opening words are the revelation of Jesus 
Christ. If we read this in the original language, it would be apocalypsis. Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. This is where we get the word apocalypse from. Some Bibles say it's the apocalypse of John. And when we hear that word apocalypse, in our, sometimes in our modern understanding, we think, oh my goodness, apocalypse, the end of the world, and it's earthquakes, and it's, and it's hailstorms, and it's uh, thunder, and wars, and ah, run, because it's the apocalypse. And it creates all this fear within us. But that's not what the original word meant. The original word apocalypse means to reveal or to unveil to uncover that's what the apocalypse is and so what we have here before us is a revealing and uncovering of jesus christ so that we can see jesus christ god gives us a peek behind the curtain we get to see what's going on in the heavenly realms with jesus christ and that then informs how we are to live today and with what we see behind that curtain then even if everybody else is hollering take curtain number one take the envelope go with the box we can go no i'm sticking right there because i know what's coming i know what's behind that curtain and no matter what anybody else says i'm holding my faith in it and that's what god is asking us to do here in revelation that's what it, it's a gift that he's giving to the church to be able to peek behind this curtain. And so we see that this is a revelation. So this book is to reveal. It's to reveal. Many times we stay away from this book because we think we're confused, or it's a mystery, or it's a puzzle book to be sorted out. But look what it says, it's here to reveal. It is a book where God is making plain before his church what is happening. And God gives this to his church today. This is not a puzzle book, not a mystery book, but it's a picture book. And God says, here it is. Here's the picture of what is going on. And notice that it says that God, in the first verse, God gave him, which would be Jesus, God gave this revelation, him, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, so it went from God to Jesus, to the angel, and to his servant John. These are holy words. These are inspired words. These are the words of God. It's not just some, like John was there and he had too many mushrooms and he's out there on a trip somewhere. Or John is making something up out of his imagination. These are the very words and images of God that he gave to John. That's what it says right there in the opening of the greeting. It was given to John, and this is John writing. It's very clear. So we ask ourselves, well, who is John? Most of us know John was a disciple of Jesus. Prior to meeting Jesus, John and his brother James were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus called them to follow him, they left their business, they followed Jesus. John walked with Jesus for three years. And after Jesus' ascension, John went with Peter into the world and became just an on-fire evangelist. And he brought the word and he brought the gospel out into the world and he became very effective in building up 
the church of Jesus Christ. John was one of the pillars of the church. At the end of his life, John moved to a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city. It's in what we would call Turkey today. It was a happening place to be. And John was living in Ephesus, and while all this worldly stuff was going on around him, you can think of a Washington, D.C., or a New York City, or Los Angeles, while all this stuff was going on around him, John was right there bringing the gospel, bringing the word, and building the church. And that's where John was at the end of his life in Ephesus. Now, at the same time John was in Ephesus, in the later part of his life, a new emperor came to reign in the Roman Empire. And that emperor was Domitian. We'll hear more about Domitian as we move through the book of Revelation. Let's just say Domitian was not a great guy. He was uh, pretty evil. Uh, he was pretty, um, uh, what do I want to say? He would just had no doubt that he would just attack. He was cruel. That's the word that I want to say. He was cruel to people. And that's Domitian. Well, Domitian decided... He was one of the emperors who decided that, you know what, I'm not only emperor, but I am God. I'm, he, he just decided that. He said, I am God, and everybody has got needs to worship me in the Roman Empire. So in Ephesus, Domitian built a temple. And Domitian built a temple, and on the lower floor of this temple was a complex of stores and businesses and marketplaces. But then as you went to the second floor, and there you can see the remains of the temple, in Ephesus today, and you can see what it looked like in the day, you would have to go to that top floor of that temple, and there you would have to burn incense, you would have to worship him, you would have to declare him to be Dominus et Dues, Lord and God. That's who he was, and that's what he demanded of his subjects. Well, you can guess how well that went with John the Apostle, John who loved Jesus, John who claimed Jesus to be Lord and God. And his word of John's preaching and his word of John's resistance got to Domitian, because you had two choices. You could either worship Domitian and burn incense, or, and to do that, you would have to worship him, declare him to be Lord and God, and you would have to curse the name of Jesus, or you could follow Jesus and face the persecution, face being exiled, be face being put on the ends of society. That was really your choice. And so while all that was going on, John, of course, stood and said, Jesus is Lord. And so when that news reached Domitian, He's like, enough of John, and I think it's pretty fortunate that he didn't kill John, but he just took John, and he took him in exile and put him on an island called Patmos. And we see that John refers to that in Revelation here in chapter 1. John says that in Revelation 1-9. He says, I was on the island called Patmos. You can see that when you hear the island Patmos, think of Alcatraz. This was an island out on the Aegean Sea. It was just rocky, barren. There was nothing there. And the Roman Empire just sent these people over there thinking, good, we're done with them. We won't have to hear from them ever again. That's where John is sitting. 
in the book of Revelation. And John says, I am sitting there on the Lord's day, is what he says in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is the only reference in the New Testament that we get to the Lord's day. It seems the apostles over the, the years changed the day of worship from the end of the week, the, the Jewish Sabbath, to the first day of the week to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here's John on the Lord's day doing what a follower of Jesus does and what a disciple of Jesus does, even in exile, he's worshiping Jesus Christ and he says that I am caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. Many of us sometimes say that, well, I've been to worship and oh, I was just so full of the spirit. I just sensed that the spirit was there. This is a different thing than that. It's great when we get touched by the spirit, but I think this is spirit extreme that was going on here with John. This is a special situation that is not commonplace and does not occur to most of the worshipers. We see this in a couple other places in the scriptures. We see this in, uh, I'm going to look it up here a minute, in Ezekiel 3.12. The prophet uh, Ezekiel, find that. prophet Ezekiel says, then the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where I was standing. Again, he's taken up into, he's taken up into the heavenlies. We think of Peter in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we read verse 10. It says, while the meal was being prepared, Peter fell into a trance and he saw heaven opened up before him. Okay, this is a special act of God where God is going to reveal something. He's going to show them. These are moments where the curtain is getting pulled aside and God showed Ezekiel something. God showed Peter something. He said, this is how the spiritual realm works and I want you to see it. And that's what's going on with John right here. And John says in his word, he says, on, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This is verse 10, saying, write down what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches. Write down what you see and send it to the seven churches. So two things about that. One, write down what you see. We have to understand that Revelation is going to be a book about what John sees. It is a visual book. Instead of using our ears, we need to use our eyes. We need to see. Throughout this book, John is going to say, I saw this. And, and then I saw this. Oh, I have to say, then I turned and I saw this. And I looked and there was this. And John is, is seeing all these things as the curtain is pulled back. And what he's trying to write down in this book is to describe for us the things that he sees. And so he's going to be using lots of analogies and lots of metaphors to describe it, to explain to people who are not seeing it what it looks like. Now, I don't know about you, but I would struggle just describing the Grand Canyon to somebody, right? Well, I went to the Grand Canyon, and it was a 
it was a big ditch. I mean, it was a really, it was the deepest ditch that I ever saw. It probably went, you know, it probably went a couple miles down and the rocks were all different levels and, and some were brown and some were gold. And then the bottom was a river, it was blue. And I could hardly see it down there. It was like, they were like ants down there running through. The, you get the picture here. If you try to describe that or imagine you went to the Niagara Falls. Well, I stood back and they just, they just soaked me and they were loud as like a, 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 a train engine going by. All right, you get this. That you're trying to describe stuff to people who aren't there. And imagine, I can't even describe earthly things, but John is seeing heavenly things. How about that for a task? We're going to pull back the curtain. We're going to show you the things of heaven. And now, John, you write them down. So he's trying to write them down. So we're going to need to look. We're going to need to use our eyes to see what John has to see. Normally, when we translate the Bible, I tell you to translate it by taking the words for what they are unless there's a reason to think about it in a symbolic way. When we come to the book of Revelation, I'm gonna tell you to look at it symbolically, unless we have a reason to look at it in a different way. Because that's the kind of literature, that's the kind of book that it is, it's pictures. And it is a struggle for us who have come out of the Enlightenment, who like everything lined up, who like it chronological, who like it in order, that's not what we get here. We get images overlapping here and overlapping there and overlapping there. And John is trying to help us understand what he sees. So we're going to need to look. John, write down what you see. And then he says, send it to the seven churches. This is a letter. It's going out to the seven churches. There are seven churches that are listed here. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're listed in the order that if you were John, you wrote your letter in Patmos, you sent somebody to deliver it to the churches. They're listed in the order that you would make a loop around bringing this letter around to these churches. So why these seven, we ask? Why Because clearly there were more. There were more. There was a church in Troas. What about them? Do they not get the letter? What about the other churches? Do they not get to hear this letter? Why just these seven. And at this point, we have to, again, recognize in the book of Revelation, numbers mean something. Numbers mean something. Yes, there are seven churches, but there's seven. And so we got to hold on to that number seven, because seven means something. We do this with our numbers, right? Uh... I remember growing up, you know, hey, I was asked to like maybe sweep the garage or, or to take the trash out and my parents would say, I told you a million times to do that. Really, mom and dad, it was probably three or four, right? But it was a million times. We use it to exaggerate. We, we, uh, we talk about uh, other ways that we use them where we go, oh, man, they were a 10, right? They were a 10. And we all know what that means. We use numbers in our language today to describe things, and John uses numbers in the same way to describe things. His numbers communicate theological truths, okay? His numbers communicate theological truths, and sometimes there are good numbers, and sometimes there are bad numbers. 
So John uses this number seven, which is the most used number in the book of Revelation. It is used 55 times in the book of Revelation. And as Laura mentioned earlier, we broke this whole series down around these numbers of seven, which you'll see as we move forward. The number seven is significant because in the Bible, the number seven means wholeness or completeness. Wholeness or completeness. Think of the creation. How many days of creation? Seven. What was done at the end of those seven days? It was complete. God's creation was whole. And we see that moving through the Bible that anytime something is linked to the number seven, often it means whole or complete. And so when we read this, yes, these seven churches are listed, but when we hear the word seven, we recognize that this letter is not just for those seven churches, but for the church as a whole. The church as a whole. For all those churches in those days, and I also would say that it speaks to us as the church in our day. This was a church for the whole. It's the seven churches. And John and God says, write it down, bring this message to the seven churches. And so in verse 2, 1, 2, John says, I bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that I saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So we got another element here. Not only do we have to look with our eyes and do we realize that this was written to the whole church, but John also says these are words of prophecy. Now normally when we think of prophecy, a lot of times we think of something, oh, we're telling the future. Here's what's going on way in the future. That's the prophecy. But that's not how biblical prophecy function. Biblical prophecy function by the prophet telling people what God is doing. Here is the activity of God. Here is what's going on in the spiritual realm. At the very same time you're doing this, here is God in the spiritual realm doing this. And because God is doing this, you now need to make a decision. You now need to adjust your life. And usually it means to repent, and it means to turn around. You need to show faith in what God is doing. And that was the call of the prophet, and so that's what's happening here in Revelation. John is saying, seven churches, church as a whole. I'm getting a peek behind the curtain. We're going to see what God is up to. We're going to see Jesus Christ. We're going to see what's going on there. And then, church, that affects how we live today. It becomes our anchor. That's why it's a book of prophecy to hold on to. And these words were to become an anchor for the church in this day. And so those seven churches, they received this word, and they get it at a time where they needed to hear it. Because, as I mentioned, Domitian was ruling throughout the empire. Domitian was bringing um, persecution upon the Christians. In fact, John comments on that himself. He says, uh, let me find what verse it was. John says, I am, in verse 9, uh, 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. I'm going through the same problems. I'm going through the same struggles. I'm, I'm dealing with the same persecution you are. Maybe even worse because I'm out here on the island of Patmos. And as I said, they had the decision to make. Do we 
do we continue to follow Jesus? Because by this time, it's 90 AD. And so this is a good 60 years after Jesus. And many of these people have never seen Jesus. We may be on to the second generation. And they're like, I'm anchoring my claim in this Jesus Christ. And yet here I live and I'm being ostracized out of our community. My business has been taken from me. I'm poor and destitute because I'm following Jesus Christ. If I don't go and worship Domitian, I could be killed because of Jesus Christ. And they're beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Do we continue to follow Jesus Christ? We were told he's coming back soon, but we haven't seen him. Do we continue to follow Jesus Christ? Because i got to tell you, it'd be a whole lot easier to go with Rome. Wouldn't it? We could live with the peace of Rome. We could live with the luxury of Rome. We could enjoy the decadence of Rome. We could enjoy everything that Rome has to offer. It's awesome. But no. We're committed to following Jesus Christ as Lord. And that means we face tribulation. We face persecution. We may even face death. That's the context. That's the message. That's where the churches are at that John is writing this book of Revelation to. It's always important for us to understand that because all the Bible, the words are written to people living in a context, in a situation. And we need to understand that in order to draw the meaning from the words. And so when you think about this, that we have these churches that are experiencing this persecution, that are having these questions in their mind, do I continue to follow Jesus? Is it worth following him? Is he really Lord? Could I just maybe fudge a little bit on this? What is the very first thing that John sees? Then I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, seven representing the whole complete, the lampstands representing the churches. We are told that at the end of John, uh, the very last, one of the last sentences, I think it is the very last sentence. The last sentence says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, just so we're not confused. Remember who Jesus called the church to be? You are the light of the world. In this dark world that is following the way of of Rome and, and sin and darkness, my church, the people that follow me, you're the light. You're the light of the world. You are the lampstands. And there are the seven lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, where is Jesus? In the midst of them. Isn't that awesome? In the midst of them. To this church that is wondering, where is Jesus? Is he alive? Is he well? What is he doing? Where is Jesus standing? smack dab in the middle of his church. This is my church. I'm alive. I hold the keys to Hades and death. Here we are, church. I am alive. Jesus is standing in the midst, one like, get ready for these words, the Son of Man. Wow. There are some teeth there. 
This has connections to the messianic hopes that God's people had. These are, wor- these, are, these are lofty words. These are words that are saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God. And what is helpful here, and as we move through, is a lot of the imagery, a lot of the words that John uses, a lot of the ways that he describes, comes from the New Testament and Old Testament. He's not making a lot of this freshly out of his mind. These are images that have been dwelling and in, in Uh, bubbling up and living within the context of God's people. And here he says, it's one like the Son of Man. Boom! Those are fighting words. Church, you think you're struggling? Look who's in the middle of you. The Son of Man. We see this in uh, Ezekiel again. These are words that, that come back to us. From Ezekiel, let me look at that. No, from Dan, I'm sorry, Daniel 7. Daniel 7. So these are words that God's people have lived with for a long, long time. And in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I think is what I want to look at. Daniel says, In my vision at night, and I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. You hear Daniel saying that? He approached the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? That would be God, the one who who was and is and is to come. The one who is forevermore. And he was led into his presence and he was given an authority, glory, and sovereign power so that all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion, take that domitian, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's Daniel 7, 13 through 14. God's people had this in their hearts. They had in their life, they knew who this was. This was the son of God and he held all authority. He held all the power. He held all kingdoms. And when John says, I turned and I looked and there was one like the son of man standing amongst his church. Has the church been abandoned? No. No. There's Jesus alive, reigning (coughs) and ruling right there. And this term, Son of Man, is the most used term that Jesus used to describe himself. It is used over uh, 81 times in the New Testament. And and it's just loaded. It's just a loaded term. If you look at Mark 14, Mark 14, Jesus is on trial. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are are you telling us that you are the Son of God? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And did you notice that those are the same words that, uh, that John used here in the scriptures when he was describing Jesus when in verse 7, 1 verse 7, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. 
Again, New Testament imagery. And Jesus says, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven, and the high priest tore his clothes. And he says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. Because in those words, Jesus says, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. And here is Jesus Christ standing in their midst saying, I'm here. I'm here. Lamps, I'm keeping your lights going. I'm training your wicks. I'm helping you to continue to shine bright. Was that a message that that church needed to hear? Can you imagine what good news that was as they heard that message of Jesus Christ standing in their midst, risen and victorious? It was such good news for them. Such good news as they heard that. Which is why I think John says in 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads a word the louds of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. That's what Revelation is about. It's not for us to run away. It's not for us to be in confusion. It's for us to read and be blessed. And here is a church that is blessed because Jesus Christ is standing there in their midst. And as John looks at him, He begins to describe what he sees, what he sees standing before him, one like the Son of Man. Now, I would not try to put this into a picture because you'll end up with something very hideous and very creepy. Uh, I have a whole stack where somebody illustrated the whole book of Revelation, and if you want to be creeped out, you can look through that stack because it wasn't meant literally That was not a literal depiction. John's describing what he saw. And instead of asking, what does he look like, we ask, who is he? By this description, who is he? And John says to us, first, I saw the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Does that ring a bell at all? Remember from our tough work through the book of Leviticus when God described that there would be a high priest and what was the high priest to wear? A long robe and a golden sash. We read that over and over again in the Old Testament that this was the dress of the high priest and it describes one who there is standing and what did the high priest do? Stood between a sinful people and a holy God and who is Jesus? He's standing there for us for the churches. He is standing there, risen as our mediator between us and God. He's wearing a golden sash. He's reigning in majesty as our high priest. And we can see that as our high priest, he's clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest, uh, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. What does this tell us? When we think of white hair, we're thinking of wisdom, right? We're thinking of knowledge. I mean, you want some wisdom? Go to our seniors, right? Whose hair is white. That's where we're going here with this knowledge. And that's where the wisdom is at. We also get purity. We get all these images coming out of here. That's who Jesus is. He's the high priest who has all knowledge, who has all purity, who is perfect and And that's who Jesus is. He's not only our high priest, but then he moves on. He also says Jesus is like 
our righteous judge. Listen to these words. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. When we think of those kind of images again, what does fire do? It refines. You burn it and all the, the junk rises to the top and you skim it away. It's a refiner's fire. And his eyes were a penetrating, uh, were like flame of fire. Have you ever gotten that look from somebody? Maybe men, you get that look from your wife or you get that, that look from your, your mom and, or you just get that look and you know, ooh, I, you're in trouble. I, I've messed up. Jesus' eyes look penetrating with flame, refining us detecting what's going on in our hearts, looking for the purity. And we see these, we see these same words over and over again. We see this, uh, these words are in Daniel 10. I just want to go back to that again to help you recognize that these are not new words. We look at Daniel 10, and Daniel has his vision. Daniel 10, verse 5, Daniel says, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. Does that sound familiar? His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Again, the image of God that Daniel saw, that John saw, that they're holding on to. And not only did he have his penetrating his penetrating gaze, he kind of had this permanent foundation. Bronze is, uh, at this time, was being developed, and it's a combination of copper and iron. All right? Their iron uh, tends to rust. Copper is weak. But if you put them together and you come up with bronze, you have something that is really strong. And that is who Jesus is in his judgment. He's strong. He stands there. The fiery glow of his feet. Again, that comes out of Ezekiel 1. You read back in Ezekiel. With his judgment, he has a Then we go to authority. I think he has authority here. Because it says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. Again, think of the Niagara Falls. Think of where you're standing, where rivers come together. The rushing sound. And his voice, you know when somebody has authority in your voice, you listen. That was the voice of Jesus. Earlier, John said it was like a trumpet. You listen. You pay attention. That was his voice. And then it says that his, um, let's see, I lost where I'm at. Uh, his eyes were flame. His, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Seven stars, which we tell us later, are the angels who are watching over the churches. So here is Jesus. I got the churches. Not only am I standing in your midst, but I'm holding on to you with my right hand, and right hand always symbolized power. Power. I have the power. I'm standing here, churches. I'm holding you with the power. I'm not only interceding for you, I not only have the authority, I'm here with power. I'm, sus I'm here sustaining you with my power. You are my prized possession. You're what I'm holding on to, church. You're what I gave my life for. I died so that you could be made pure and go into God's presence. You're my most prized possession, and I'm holding on to you with power. And then it finishes up with, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is a sword that not only brings judgment, 
but it brings salvation at the same time. Judgment and salvation. I'm the one. And in the very end, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is his transcendence, his glory, his majesty, his beauty. I don't think John even touched the surface of who Jesus was and what Jesus looked like. But he tries to describe it. And as you listen to this, I hope you get a sense that this is really beyond maybe even our comprehension or our understanding. But there is Jesus. And you put all of those together. And for me, we live in this world today that loves a very comfy Jesus and a very buddy Jesus and a cozy Jesus. But what happens if you walk up and you have to stand next to this Jesus? What did John do? He fell down afraid. We can sing, I can only imagine. Will I dance for you, Jesus? Oh no, I'm gonna fall before you, Jesus. That's what I'm gonna do. The curtain has been pulled back. We have an image of Jesus Christ right here. This is the risen Jesus right now, right today, who he is in the heavenly realms as we sit here as a church. That's Jesus today. Do you see him? That's what John is pointing us to in this passage. And, he, and what a gift it was for the church in this day. Jesus standing there. And John falls down dead before him. But did he stay there? No. Because Jesus put his hand on him. He put his arm on him and said, do not be afraid. Fear not. Because I am alive. This reminds me of the, the famous passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, Aslan is a lion who is depicted as, as Jesus' uh, figure. And uh, the, little, the little girl, Susan, in this story, looks at the lion and says, well, I think the lion's human. Maybe the human is a human friend. And, and this is what happens. And uh, Mrs. Mr. Beaver responds to her when she says, well, Aslan is just a man. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver? Certainly not. I tell you, he is, he is in the king, he is, I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, that's who Aslan is. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Then you will, dearie. And no, mis and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see the risen Jesus? 
in his glory as the Son of Man, as his glory as the only one who is worthy of our praise in all creation, in all the world? Do you see this Jesus as John gives us a picture of him? He is not safe. But we don't have to be afraid because he is king. And he is alive this very day. And this is such good news. As I said, it was good news for that church in that day for them to hear this. But I got, I got to tell you, this is good news for me today as we live in our world today. That I know that Jesus, as I look behind the curtain, is risen. That he is alive. That he's the high priest. That he's the righteous judge. That he's the one we worship in majesty. That he's holding the church in his hands. Because there are times where my heart breaks and I have questions. I looked at what went on in, in Memphis this week and I see the beatings going on in the world and we see the amount of, of shootings that keep happening in our world. I'm like, what is going on? How do we take care of this evil? What's the remedy? And it's not policies. It's not politics. It's not new legislation that takes care of it. It's evil. It is the high priest, it is Jesus who takes care of the evil through what he has done. And one day, that evil's gonna be gone because we got one who is standing there to judge the evil. And I feel great about that. I don't have to worry about it. He takes it off my shoulders. We see what's going on in this, this, this world uh, around us. There are other things that just continue to happen, right? We, we have people who are broken, people who are, who are hurting. We get, we get ill, right? We get, I dealt with my whole back issues last, you know, which was mild compared to what a lot of people deal with. And then I'm like so grateful that there is Jesus who has risen and I have hope that I'm not always gonna be a broken down, you know, person. But one day I'm gonna be made new because of the power of presence of Jesus Christ. And how do I know that? Why can I say that today? Because we just peek behind the curtain and we know what's true and I'm gonna hold on to that for certain. We see these things going on all around us. I, gosh, you know, it was just such a week, maybe because I was in Revelation. On, on the day last week, it was the Sanctity of Life Sunday. And, and not to get too political here, but the, our Vice President of the United States stood on a platform and said, we gotta, we gotta make sure everything is just so that babies can be killed in this country. That's wrong. God's the author of life, of all life. It's all precious to him. And yet I live in a country where people think it's okay to kill babies. And, and, they, and they lift it up. I think of Domitian again. I think of the country, you know, where these people live. And I'm like, oh, how, God, what do I do? How do I battle that? He's going to take care of it. He's going to bring what's right. He's going to bring what's just. And, and I look... Sometimes at what's going on in, in the life of the church because we'll see as we move forward that there were struggles going on in the life of the church that it was breaking apart from the inside. And I look what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ today and how, how the church is absorbing the, the, the world and how the, the church is accepting the sexual revolution that is going on around us. And it is eroding from the inside when Jesus Christ calls us and, and to be pure and to be holy and to be radiant and blameless before him. And I'm like, what is going on, Jesus? How do we take care of this? And over and over again, I just, sometimes I just crumble in despair. 
I'm like, what do I do in this world? How do I continue to go on? And how do I go on? Jesus. The peak behind the curtain. I go on because I know who sits on the throne. I know who is king of kings. I know whose kingdom will one day reign. I know whose kingdom one day I will be a part of because I have placed my hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens in this world today, I can continue to live in faith. I can continue to move forward. I can continue to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, as Paul says, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And I can continue to move forward no matter what this world is bringing me because I know whose I am. And I know where my outcome is because I've had this peek behind the curtain. And I just want to ask you today, where do you need to see the the risen Jesus in your life. Where do you need to see Jesus standing in your life today? Maybe like me, it's what's going on in the world around you, but maybe you're here today and you're facing some some health troubles. Maybe you're dealing with some relationship issues that you just don't think could ever be remedied. What is it that you're dealing with today? How is it that you are living in this world? that maybe is, in, is, is compressing on you. Maybe you have doubts and questions and certainty about Jesus Christ, about your faith. Well, I don't know what it is. In what way today, I just want to ask you, do you need to see a vision of the risen Jesus Christ, the one who is glorified? And let that image affect your heart. Let that image infuse your life because as John said to us he said blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it because the one we serve today people of God is the one who was and is and is to come and sits on the throne now and forevermore. And so church, let us know that he's holding us in his hands and let us move forward knowing that he is behind us every step of the way. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God, we thank you for this vision that you have given us here in Revelation to encourage us, to lift us up. And we thank you for the risen Savior. And God, we ask that as we come here today and where we were maybe struggling and maybe we were without hope, we were living with questions, God, that you would come today and help us to see what John saw. You would give us a vision of Jesus and help us to know today that we can leave this place victorious because we know the one who sits on the throne today and forevermore. We lift up your name. You are our God and you are our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.